Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture whether you like it or not. Islam, peaceful and progressive religion, or savage oriental cult, a vehicle for reason and culture, or a tool of hidden Jewish power. There are a lot of opinions about Islam and particularly about Arab history that I want to talk about today. Most of them are ranging from ridiculous to uh, misinformed, and I want to work through all of them and give you an idea of what Islam really is and what the important facts of it are and how that relates to us as Europeans, as white people in a uh, society that is not controlled by us. So, first of all, the special, there are many special difficulties with studying the Middle East and studying Islam. If you go to a bookstore, uh, Barnes & Noble or something like that, and you look around at, at the uh, reading available, you're going to find two basic things. You're going to find books written by liberals about how good Islam is or how progressive it is or how evil certain governments in the Middle East are and how uh, Iranian girls need to wear hijabs and that's barbarous and we need to change that. On the other hand, you'll find books by neoconservatives, uh, Jews on both sides, of course, liberal or neoconservative, but you'll find neoconservative books about how uh, the Middle East is backwards and we need to uh, grapple with the problems of Islam and so on and so forth. All of these books, pretty much everything you find is in one way or another sensational. It is not interested in being objective and at getting to the truth of what, you know, historically these people are and what their faith is. And because really it's from uh, only such a rational and objective understanding of these things that you're going to be able to figure out how to deal with them and what our policy should be if we ever controlled our own societies toward the Arabs and toward the Muslims generally. The other kind of book that you'll find is books such as uh, A History of the Arab Peoples by Albert Harani or The Arabs by, by uh, Rogan. What you'll find in these books is that they start very strangely at about 1800. Most of they, their coverage deals with the last 200 years. Now, this also is, is misinforming uh, or is not very helpful because the central fact of Arab history, the most important part of it, is from the period of about the life of Muhammad, the prophet, till about 1150 or 1200. That is the great age of Islam and that is the great age of Arab culture and history. And everything since then really is not as important. So with the Hurani book, for instance, what you'll see is he devotes seven pages out of about 500 to talking about Muhammad and the Quran. This is absurd. I don't understand how you could have a book about the Middle East and, and, and start with that. And then he gives three pages to talking about the great Arab conquests after the life of Muhammad, where the Arabs went from being petty tribes in Arabia to controlling the biggest empire in the world. We'll talk about all those things in this lecture. What Harani goes on to talk about is he spends chapter after chapter talking about the sociology of the Ottoman Empire. So books like that really set a lot of people off on the wrong foot, and they're also very badly written and hard to read. 
if you want to find out about the Middle East, you have to really start with much more simple stuff and you have to start with older stuff. The best writing in the, on uh, Middle Eastern history and culture for uh, Western audiences is basically stuff written between about 1850 and the middle of the 20th century by men who are educated in England, France, Germany, or other European countries, uh, or America in some cases, who were thoroughly educated in Western history and culture, and who studied Arabic uh, and possibly also Persian and got a good idea of those languages as well, and were able to attempt from an objective point of view to get an idea of the good, the bad, and the ugly of Islam, and to present it in a, um, a critical way to their audiences. So books like that, there are just a couple I'll mention right now uh, that I'm kind of going to be working off as I go through this lecture. There's a, a short history of the Arab peoples by Sir John Bagot Glubb. He also has another uh, eight books on Arab history. He's got one on the life of Muhammad and then a whole series about the Islamic empires after Muhammad. You've got books like History of the Arabs by Philip Hitti. Uh, now, Philip Hitti was a Lebanese, but he was educated in the West. And his book is great because he starts off in the first part of six. He talks about pre-Islamic Arabia, and then he talks an entire an entire sixth of the book is about Muhammad and the conquests just after Muhammad. And then he spends the next three parts talking about all the empires and all the the culture and art and literature of the succeeding Arab history. And then his history winds up really in about 1200. So he has the right focus. The right focus, the, the good part and the most interesting part of Arab history, of Islamic history, is that from the life of Muhammad and, and a little bit before with some of the Arab tribes and, and their, um, their culture, all the way up until 1150 or so, or maybe as far as 1250, 1258, where the uh, Mongols sacked Baghdad. Other special difficulties in studying the Middle East is that the topic itself is intrinsically very difficult. There are many, many names of people and places that you would not have heard unless you made a special study of the Near East. It's very difficult to remember the names because a lot of them are very alien. It really does help in studying the Middle East to at least acquire uh, a little bit of Arabic, like just a few words or, or some basic understanding of how the language works, because then words that appear totally alien then became a little bit more understandable to you. For instance, in Arabic nomenclature, or not nomenclature, but uh, naming, the common way to do it is to give uh, names such as Abdullah, which is servant of God. Abd is a servant or a slave, so Abdullah, servant of God. Then there are many other names like Abdul Karim, Abdul Rahman, so servant of the noble, servant of the beneficent. And these words, Al-Karim, Al-Rahman, are all names of God, all uh, epithets of God. The other thing you'll see in Arabic naming is things like uh, Ibn, son of, or Bin, son of, same thing, uh, or Abu. This is a strange Arabic habit of naming a father after his son. So once you have a, an eldest son, you might be called Abu Sufyan, the father of Sufyan, Abu Talib, the father of Talib. If you don't have a son, then you'll be called Abu Banat, father of daughters. But other like aspects of the Arabic language, I'll, I'll move on from this because this isn't terribly um, pertinent, but other aspects of it is that there is a, most Arabic words consist of a root of three letters, 
some are a root of four letters. But as opposed to the European languages where we're used to having roots being unbreakable, uh, a root is just you can either put prefixes or suffixes or you can change the end of the root, but the root itself is, stays the same. An Arabic root, and this is true of, of other Semitic languages as well, is three pieces or is three different consonants. Uh, and then you insert vowels and sometimes other consonants in between and before and at the end to get different kinds of words. So words that maybe uh, appear totally different to, to the European eye are actually to the Muslim or the, the, the Arab speaker very uh, clearly related. Such a, a case is Islam from the root uh, yusallam to submit. So Islam is, is submission. It's the religion. And Muslim is the person who believes in Islam, the person who has submitted. The prefix mu shows that it's a person who does the action of the verb. The other reason that this topic is incredibly difficult, so I mentioned that it's hard because the information, especially more recent information, is bad or is biased, or is either it's either really, really pro-Muslim and, and progressive, or it's really, really anti-Muslim, uh, unnecessarily so. And just the difficulty of finding people who are competent in or finding authors who are competent both in um, Islamic studies or, or Middle Eastern history and culture and at the same time can write in good English or good German, good French. Now, before I start discussing the special uh, important things about uh, Arab history and Islamic history, I want to first talk about why is this interesting? Why do I find it interesting? Why should you find it interesting? Well, first of all, Islamic civilization and studying it provides you a way to look at something to which you do not have any connection. You, in studying, say, the wars between the Sunnis and the Shias, or the, the Persians and the Arabs, you don't really have a dog in that fight. You don't have any, as a European, I have no need to care about one side or the other. Unlike reading about the Punic Wars or the Persian Wars. Of course, I'm going to side with the Romans. Of course, I'm going to side with the Greeks. Reading about World War II, of course, I'm going to side with the Germans. But when it comes to Middle Eastern history, the moral and political questions aren't of direct importance to us as Europeans. And so in that regard, it's in a way uh, better to study this history. I mean, I'm by no means saying don't study European history. Of course, you need to know that. But Middle Eastern history provides a sort of control. Uh, think of a scientific experiment where you have a, a control group that uh, is, is outside the experiment or is part of the experiment, but isn't subjected to the conditions that the, uh, uh, the experimented upon group is. That's how I look at Islamic history. It's something that I can look at objectively and as a, a total outside party. And I can try to examine why did these people who are very different from me in their thinking and their world outlook, why did they act the way that they did? Why did Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan uh, fight against Ali ibn Abi Talib? Why did the Abbasids have a revolution against the Umayyads uh, around 750? What were the, the groups of people in each side and, and what were their interests and, and how did they, uh, why did they do what they did? I can do that without any prior baggage from from uh, you know some sort of connection that I might feel to my ancestors or to people of, of my uh, religion or my racial type. Another 
reason that Middle Eastern history is interesting is because it is fairly well documented. There are many, many Arabic writing historians from the Middle Ages, uh, a lot of which hasn't been translated in English, believe it or not. But there are thousands and thousands of pages of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of Arabic literature from the time. Uh, I don't know if, if it, I would compare it to the amount of work available in Greek and Latin, although I'd say it might actually be more than that if you take the period of about 600 to about 1200. Uh, or, or maybe move it up to 1400 because you can include some other uh, writers like Ibn Khaldun if you go that far. But there is a great amount of information about this time period from inside and from outside of the Islamic world. So, and more than has really been processed uh, in the sort of way that European history or classical Greek and Roman history have been processed. Another reason... Uh, I sort of said it just then, is that Middle Eastern history isn't very well studied. Part of that has to do with the biases of, of liberals or of neoconservatives or of Jews trying to use Middle Eastern history for their own political purposes, trying to say, okay, well, Islam was progressive, and that's why we should study Islam, because it shows that why we should have a diverse sort of society. Or on the other hand, Islam is super conservative and regressive, and it ha they have barbaric practices like polygyny or of, uh, of forced conversion, and that is why we need to study it. All of that stuff really gets in the way, and there's very really relatively few authors who take a more objective approach, a sympathetic but critical approach to the matter. The, uh, the final reason that I do find the Arabs interesting, and I think uh, worth, worthy of study, unlike some other peoples, is that while they're not my people, and we have certainly been enemies with them many times in the past, there is something noble about them because they are a warrior race, or they are a series or a, a group of warrior races. They are known for being fighters and for being administrators and rulers of empires. They're not known as much for being uh, clever at trade or um, negotiators uh, like the Jews are. Now, that being said, that brings us nicely into one of our first important topics about Arab history and uh, Islamic history in general that isn't really realized. And that is the question of race in the Arab world and the Islamic world. So let's back up. What is the Islamic world? The Islamic world is anywhere where Islam is the primary religion. So that if we go west to east, we have Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, so all of North Africa, even as far south as like the uh, the Negro regions of sort of northern the, the Sahel area, just south of the uh, Sahara Desert. Of course, the Arabian Peninsula, Syria, greater Syria, including uh, Palestine and Lebanon, Iraq, Persia, Central Asia, Afghanistan, Northwest India, uh, now Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, and then also um, Indonesia. Now, among all of these areas that are Islamic, oh, I should I should also say Turkey and Albania and uh, Bosnia, the racial Arab core of all this, or I shouldn't say the racial Arab core, it's really the linguistic core because the Arabs themselves aren't really one race. They're actually a series of races. But the they are a linguistic group. 
And Arabic is spoken in the Arabian Peninsula, Iraq, uh, Greater Syria, Egypt, and then all the way out to Morocco. Even among this core of what we now call the Arab world, there are different racial groups. And in fact, about 100 years ago, if you talked about the Arab world, you weren't talking about Egypt or North Africa. You were really just talking about Arabia, Syria, and Iraq. The different groups are primarily your Bedouin nomadic Arabs. That's the real Arab. That's the, what the word originally meant was a Bedouin from the Arabian Peninsula. Then you've got Egyptians and Syrians and Iraqis who all have sort of differences among them and all come from different stocks, different backgrounds. Uh, your Iraqis tend to be uh, more connected with the Persians, as you'd expect, Persia being right there. Your Syrians tend to be uh, heavily mixed with uh, Greeks and Crusaders and also uh, the, the, but the root stock of them is the, the pre-Islamic Aramaic population. And then your Egyptians are, of course, the same people who anciently were the ancient um, you know, Egyptian civilization with some Greek influence and some Arab influence. The commonalities between these three civilized parts of the Arab world, or the, the most civilized parts, most heavily settled parts, the Iraqis, the Syrians, and the Egyptians, are that these people are always and or have always been noted to be very clever and very intellectual. They are almost the exact opposite of the Bedouin Arab, who is known for his independence, his uh, quick thinking, his cleverness, but also his, his bravery. Egyptians, Syrians, and Iraqis aren't usually known for their bravery. A, then the similar race to the Bedouins, the Arab, the uh, Bedouins of Arabia, are the Berbers of North Africa. So that's really from Libya through Tunisia, Algeria to uh, Al-Maghrib Al-Aqsa, that is the farthest Maghreb, that is Morocco. The Berbers have only acquired Arabic speech in the last few hundred years. And in fact, many of them still speak Berber languages. They haven't fully transitioned to Arabic yet. And they have something a great deal in common with the Berbers of Arabia, not in racial origin so much as in their habits of mind. They are also a very independent sort of people, very tribalistic. They're uh, brave, they're physically tough. And all that has to do with the environments that these people have lived in for many, many, many generations. Now, before I go further, I would like to you know, justify myself to you. Why should you listen to me on Islam and the Arabs versus anybody else? And what are my special expertise in this? So I'm no expert on the Middle East, but I've spent many years studying it uh, as an amateur. I began studying Arabic when I was 13. I studied it with a uh, tutor, the, an Iraqi gentleman of the older generation from about age 14 to age 18. And then I proceeded to take uh, graduate level classes in it at Ohio State, some 400, 600 classes, classical Arabic poetry, classical prose, uh, composition classes, uh, media classes, that sort of thing. I have since then read, and, and during that time as well, read many books on Middle Eastern history, and I think I have a pretty good understanding of it. I have not spent much time in the Middle East. I've been to the Maghreb for a few weeks. But I've never been to Iraq or Syria or Arabia or Egypt. But I think that the one thing you can get from me that you can't get from pretty much anybody else today is I will tell you what I think and I can tell you what I think directly because I am nobody. I am not in academia. I am an outcast from everything. And I am willing to therefore entertain any idea 
I'm willing to entertain the possibility that Islam is the greatest evil in the world, or maybe it is a great and wonderful progressive force for progress in history, and we should admire it. I have the ability to be open-minded in the same way that the great Islam, the great Oriental and Arabic scholars of Europe and America did in that golden age of the humanities between the middle of the 19th and the middle of the 20th centuries. So with that said, let's get into it. What is Islam and where does it come from? If we go back to the year 570, picture the map of the Middle East. What did it look like? Well, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, controlled what's today Turkey, Syria, and Egypt. Of course, Greece and some of the Balkans as well. And they, thanks to the conquest of Justinian, they had pieces of North Africa and Italy. And then to their east was the Sassanid dynasty of Persia, controlling Persia and much of Central Asia and also Iraq. Both of these two great empires were riven by internal religious disputes, and they had to maintain their power mainly through uh, brute force, especially outside of their core areas. Another aspect of this, if you look to the south, were the Arabic tribes, the Arabic-speaking Bedouin tribes. For the purposes of Rome uh, or Byzantium and Persia, the most important were the Ghassanids and the Lachmids, which were two tribes, the Lachmids on the, the border of Iraq to the south and the uh, Ghassanids on the border of like what's now Jordan. And these were vassal states of the Byzantine and Persian empires. Otherwise, Arabia was a land of, of small tribal groups. With the exception of two areas, one is the Yemen down in the very south, where there was um, some a little bit of a kingdom and a history of, of kingly states being set up there. Uh, the Yemen was at the time uh, a colony of Persia at, by 570. And then there was also in the Hejaz, that is in the western part of the country, the sort of slightly hillier, mount, slightly mountainous part of the country running along the side of the Red Sea, uh, trade routes and trade cities, and most prominent and important of which, uh, at least for our purposes, are Mecca and Yathrib. So at about this time, 570, the prophet Muhammad was born at Mecca. He was a member of a clan within the ruling uh, tribe of the city. The tribe that ruled Mecca was the Quraysh tribe. Muhammad, though, was not of the ruling uh, clique within the Quraysh tribe. He was of the, the Beni Hashim, the descendants of, of Hashim. Some of his distant cousins within the Quraysh clan were the ruling faction. Uh, usually they're called the Beni Umayyah. So what made Mecca important to the ruling factions of the Quraysh? Well, it was an important stop along the trade route from Yemen up, unto, up to... Uh, the, the trade routes in Syria and in Mesopotamia. But the other thing that Mecca had that the other trade cities didn't have is it had a great shrine, the Kaaba, which supposedly was put there by Abraham. But by the time of the uh, Quraysh rule in Mecca was filled with hundreds of idols. Every year, many of the peoples of Arabia, many of the tribesmen would come to the Kaaba to see the idols and to pray. And Mecca also and, and Yathrib also had, they were known because there were often trade fairs at these places and uh, 
not only for trade, but also for culture. Pre-Islamic Arabia was very much the main aspect of its culture was its poetry. And in the era going beyond Muhammad, many of the pre-Islamic poems were still held in high esteem and were written down. Uh, men like Imr al-Qais, who was a, a great poet of the very early times, three or four hundreds AD, who's thought to have lived, uh, who wrote these uh, very epic, very uh, romantic poetry. But in this whole area, the Byzantine and Persian empires and in, in unsettled Arabia, or in uh, unorganized Arabia, there was a tremendous amount of religious strife. So in the Byzantine Empire, there was the doctrine of the Orthodox Christian Church in Constantinople, and in their, also their patriarchates in uh, Antioch and Jerusalem and Alexandria. And they differed greatly with what many of the people in Syria and Egypt particularly believed. There were disputes, doctrinal disputes, about the nature of Christ. The government held that Christ is of one essence, but many people in Syria and Egypt particularly believed in the uh, monophysite uh, position that, uh, that Christ was of one nature with the Father. Uh, there were attempted compromises, uh, monothelitism to say that uh, the, the Father and the Son have one will. These arguments about theological issues caused not only great strife, like arguments, but really oppression. The Byzantine government had to ensure that ideologically its subordinate peoples were loyal to it and subscribed to the same doctrine as Constantinople. At the same time, this made it difficult for the Byzantines to deal with their, their Ghassanid Arab allies because the Ghassanids happened to be monophysites. And it made it difficult to keep control of the Egyptians and the Syrians. If we look at Persia, a similar but slightly different situation prevailed. In Persia, the ruling class were Zoroastrians, that is, followers of the uh, semi-legendary ancient poet or ancient um, prophet Zoroaster. And that religion was really only popular with the Persian upper class. It wasn't as strong or as uh, evangelistic as Christianity or as later Islam would be. And so the Persians faced a great problem of dealing with Christians and Jews within their empire because they uh, often saw that Christians might be Roman agents. And if we look down at Arabia, Arabia too was a patchwork of different religious types. Uh, the ancient and primitive paganism still prevailed within, within many tribes, but some of the tribes, particularly in the cities, were looking at various uh, or, or were converting to certain brands of Christianity uh, and even Judaism. In fact, in the Yemen, the king down there, or the kings down there, had uh, uh, embraced Judaism. So all of this is important because the life of Muhammad and, and the, the course that it took was very much affected by the religious strife that, that Muhammad saw around him. And the success of Islam was primarily due to Muhammad's very brutal and direct method of solving all of these religious disputes. So let's go through Muhammad's life a little bit. I said he was born in about 570. That was the year that the Abyssinian king invaded Arabia and attempted to take Mecca with elephants. It was called Sanatafil, the year of the elephant. And uh, the elephants 
and the Ethiopian army didn't make it all the way to Mecca. They were killed off by a plague. But Muhammad, early in his life, not too much is known. He was sent out to the desert for a while uh, as a good Arabian to be raised by, or to, to at least get used to the desert life, the Bedouin life. Uh, the merchant classes of Mecca still thought of that as being the, the correct way to live. Uh, and it's a good way to toughen your boy up. It's sort of like the Spartans sending their, their sons off to, uh, you know, learn to be in the army. And when he was about 12, his father is supposed to have taken him on a, a trade trip to Damascus in Syria. He was married at age 25 to a wealthy merchant woman, 15 years his senior, by the name of Khadija. And this allowed Muhammad to uh, sort of disengage from commercial life. He had had some success as a merchant, as a, a caravan uh, leader. And because of Khadija's wealth, he was able to start to think about the meaning of life and, and engage in more uh, religious metaphysical speculation. He adopted a habit of going off into the caves around Mecca to pray. This is about, about the time of age, age 40 or so he was doing this. And the story is that one day he was in a cave and the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Recite in the name of thy Lord who created ye, made man from a blood clot. And this vision scared Muhammad at first. And there was, there was some more lines of it. This, this what the angel said to him was later brought into the Quran as Surat al-Alaq. I think it's Surah number 92. And it's a bit longer. It's, uh, I think it's, eight, it's like 20 lines or so. But this very much scared Muhammad having this dream. And so he went back home. And at first he wasn't sure what to make of it. And some time went by and he, he didn't have any more visions. But over the next three years or so, he started to have more and more visions. And he decided to start preaching. He had first told his wife and he told a, uh, a cousin of his, Abu Bakr, and a, uh, another cousin of his, Ali ibn Abi Talib. And he had a small circle of friends around him who, who started to believe. When he started to preach in Mecca openly his religion, he gained a few dozen followers. But it brought him to strife with the Quraysh merchant class because they did not appreciate Muhammad denigrating the Kaaba, that is the big, the the uh, sort of temple with all the idols in it that Abraham is supposed to have built, and that was a big attraction for for the tribes to come to Mecca and worship, and this was of course a great source of wealth to the Quraysh tribe was having this shrine in their town. So Muhammad faced opposition from the ruling class and. Eventually, uh, pressure built up. His, uh, his patron, Abu Muttalib, died and no longer having any protection. He and his small band of followers were forced to flee. And they fled to a town called Yathrib, which is 200, 250 miles to the north of Mecca and is also a trade town. Muhammad had connections there. And when after he fled, this was called the Hijra, the, immigra the emigration from Mecca. It's in 622 AD. The Muslim community set itself up, and Muhammad's role in Medina was called Yathra, but then it, it, it now is called Medina because it's called Medina Tad Nebi, the city of the prophet. 
and it's no longer called Yathrib, that's the ancient name, ever since Muhammad has been called Medina. In Medina, Muhammad had a role as a sort of mediator between the different tribes within the city who were having disputes over various things. And Muhammad was seen as a perfect mediator because he was had a reputation for honesty and for uprightness. And he wasn't really a party to anybody else's disputes within the city. It is somewhat comical to note that a number, two or three of these tribes were, were Jewish in faith. And Muhammad had a lot of problems with them because the rabbis from these tribes did the same thing to Muhammad that they're supposed to have done to Jesus. They would ask him prickly questions to try to, to, try to get him to screw up uh, in remembering stories of the Old Testament or of uh, Abraham and Moses and, and so forth, and just to embarrass him in front of the other people, to trick him up on or trip him up on very small technical questions was a favorite way of dealing with them. And this caused a lot of problems with uh, the Jews and the followers or the, the small group of followers who were part of the, the Ummah, the community around Muhammad. The other problem that Muhammad had in Medina was that the Meccans weren't going to let it go. So Muhammad and his followers raided a caravan that was on its way to Mecca and this or were about to raid it. And this provoked a response from the Meccan aristocracy. And there were a couple battles. There's Battle of Butter, Battle of the Ditch, where the Meccan aristocracy sent troops. Uh, we were talking small battles, 300 men, 1,000 men, that kind of thing, to fight against Muhammad and the Muslim community. The Muslims won first battle. They lost the second, were almost eradicated, but then they were able to recover. And eventually, Muhammad was able to build up his power and gain more support from more tribes. And eventually, he returned in 630 to Mecca in triumph. And the Quraysh clan accepted Islam. And then Muhammad was able to send out ambassadors to the other tribes of Arabia. And by the time of his death in 632, all of Arabia, with the exception of the Border, borderlands of uh, the Roman Empire and Persia was under Islamic control. It is hard to overestimate what an achievement that is. I said that Muhammad, uh, simple and, and brutal methods really uh, achieved this. I probably shouldn't have said brutal. What I mean is more just very direct. So he was able to w weld together the Meccans, the people of Medina, the different tribes of Medina, and all these tribes all across Arabia, the first time in history this had ever been done by a couple methods. One, uh, and if you read about Muhammad's life, I, I can't recommend enough the biography, uh, Life and Times of Muhammad by John Baggett Glubb. It's uh, quite entertaining, very easy to read. Glubb was a historian of the Arabs. He understood what he was talking about. But you acquire the impression that over Muhammad's life, he started off in his well over the course of his mission. He started off being a very modest and trepidatious man. He asked people to become Muslims. He preached to them in a, a, a nice way. But as he gained political experience and, and uh, experience in, in spreading his religion, he was dealing with Bedouin Arabs. Remember, I mentioned these Bedouin are very independent minded, very strong willed people. He started more and more to just force his way through problems. There are 
sort of one cannot help but drawing the conclusion reading a biography of muhammad that he was a very similar person to other great leaders conquerors religious leaders genghis khan adolf hitler napoleon there are very similar aspects of their biographies and of their their personality traits their characters that come to the fore hitler and muhammad both were rather modest men very quiet men only in middle age did they start to really have some political success they tried to be nice to people and they, they realized that that didn't work and they started to be a little bit uh more forceful as they got older in the case of muhammad specifically what he, what allowed him to bring about this political revolution among the arabs was that his doctrine that he preached islam was extremely simple he understood now we'll never know exactly how he came to understand this uh, we should always keep in mind talking about muhammad that the sources on his life were mostly written about 200 years after his death so now there is oral tradition before that but the first uh major works of history are from about 200 years after his death works like ibn ishaq or uh, ibn saad uh, or atabri and so we don't know uh, we the direct sources for the life of muhammad are very sparse but i think it's safe to say that he apprehended looking at the religious milieu of arabia and of the neighboring countries remember he'd been to damascus as a child he'd uh, you know he knew people who traveled regularly to persia or to to roman territory he understood that all of these religious disputes that were happening in the roman empire that were happening in arabia that were happening in persia could only be stopped and a new political community could only be formed with a ruthlessly simple and direct doctrine that no one could argue with and that it would be very difficult for people within the religion to have petty little fights about small points of doctrine or theology as was the case or as was the, the problem plaguing byzantium christianity particularly consequently islam is very simple doctrine la illallah illallah muhammadan rasulullah there is no god but god and muhammad is his prophet that hasn't changed since the life of muhammad i know it and i'm not even a muslim compare that with christianity every little church has its own translation of the nicene creed the our father I, when i was a kid we said i remember saying uh and forgive those who tr uh, trust as we forgive those who trespass against us well apparently in latin it's uh we forgive uh forgive those who owe debts to us and now they've last time I, I went to church they changed it again like what the hell islam cut through all that bullshit and made it very simple and also emphasized the use only of arabic everything had to be in arabic so the quran was revealed to muhammad in arabic his followers memorized these verses and um it was only written down uh decades or maybe about a century after his death but it was memorized and it fairly quickly i mean there's academic disputes about this but it fairly quickly assumed the form that it has now and has been the uh you know the doctrine of islam that you can if you can cite something from the quran that argument beats all other arguments it also is not supposed to be translated or if it is translated translation is not considered legitimate 
if you want to know what the prophet said, or actually really in Muslim doctrine, what Allah said, then you have to go to the Quran. You have to go to the Arabic Quran of Muhammad. Other aspects of the doctrine that allowed or that helped Muhammad in his political mission of uniting the Arabs. You should think of Islam not so much as a just a religion. It's not just like Christianity or Judaism or Zoroastrianism or Buddhism. Islam is a Weltanschauung. It is a worldview. It is a political, religious, social way of living. So in the Quran, there are verses describing how exactly inheritance is to be done, how women are to be dealt with. It regulates all aspects or many aspects of social, basic social life in such a way that it will, it stomped out a lot of the problems of pre-Islamic Arabia. Now, liberals will look at this and tell you, well, Muhammad was progressive because he forbade the, pro the ancient Arabian practice of what is called what, which is the um, burying alive of unwanted baby girls. Well, sure, but I don't, it's not that Muhammad was progressive or something like importing these modern catchwords into ancient Islamic medieval or Arabian history is stupid. Really, Muhammad's genius was understanding the political problems of his era and everything in Islam is very good at correcting these problems. So, for instance, if you're burying baby girls alive because you don't want them, well, you're going to have a gender imbalance, which is going to cause extra social strife, is it not? In the case of uh, Muhammad's or the Quran's regulation of this um, of inheritance, one thing is, for instance, that daughters are supposed are entitled to half of what sons are entitled to in inheritance. Now, this is much argued about uh, by people in the West who don't understand what they're talking about, but it makes sense that the daughter only gets half of the inheritance because she's already gotten a dowry because she's been married off probably by the time that the parent is dying and passing on a dowry. Uh, sons don't get dowries. And I bring that up just to point out like it is it's funny to me when I hear about you know modern days like kids kids getting screwed out of their inheritance by their their evil boomer parents. Well, that can't happen in Islam because there's a speci there's specific rules about who gets inheritance. You can't you are not allowed to decide to not give your kid inheritance. Your kid gets inheritance. I mean, unless you've disowned them. You have to you they have to do something very extreme for them to be disowned. As a matter of course, they're supposed to get inheritance. The same thing happens, or the same thing is true of Islam's regulation of marriage and, and gender. It allows for polygyny, that is for marrying of multiple wives. The usual interpretation is that it allows to taking up to four wives. Muhammad himself took 11 or 13 wives, depending on how you count. The social utility of this, you know, don't you when people hear that, they often think, OK, well, Muhammad was just using his political position to get sexual gratification or he was just being a greedy asshole. Muhammad was not like David Koresh. The reason for the fantastic success of Islam in Muhammad's life and after Muhammad's life is because he was organizing the community in such a way that the top men who were helping out Muhammad were also finding wives. Muhammad wasn't taking the wives of his immediate followers like a cult leader would. He was providing everybody. And I do take some issue with this. There's sort of a uh, people will say that Muhammad was kind of a sex fiend or accuse him of, of sexual impropriety because he had so many wives. 
I find that very hard to believe uh, for a couple of reasons. One, he didn't have that many children. He had two or three sons, all of whom died in a very young age. He had a few daughters. He had one daughter who survived into a... Uh, Fatima was his, the main daughter who survived into adulthood. He didn't have like dozens of kids, as you might expect, with someone who has 11 or 13 uh, sexual partners. The other reason I don't think that we should accuse Muhammad of having uh, sexual impropriety is just because it tends to be the case throughout history that great men have a fair amount of self-control. You don't get to be the leader of a world-changing religion or an empire if you are a complete poonhound. So I'm skeptical of those claims, uh, and, and most of the historians are as well. It does seem to be the case that a lot of uh, Muhammad's marriages were contracted for political reasons. He had to bring some tribe into the religion, so it made sense he marries another daughter of, of a tribal leader. Or the other reason, too, was for charity. Back then, if a woman did not have a husband and she didn't have a family or, or the, her family couldn't support her, well, there was no such thing as a charity to like support people like that. And any man, if, if you ever founded such a charity, you can imagine that people would just accuse the man running the charity of screwing all the women uh, under his care. The only proprietous way to deal with a person charitably who was, or a woman who was not attached to a family or a husband was to marry her off. But the point I'm getting at here is that everything Muhammad did in his life, everything that we see in the religion is useful for forming a political community. And it was wildly successful. So after Muhammad died, it could have been the case that the Arabs simply split up, that they reverted to paganism or to whatever other doctrines, Christian doctrines or Judaism that, that they had been practicing before their conversion to Islam. And remember, I mean, most of these people had really only converted in the last five or 10 years of Muhammad's life. So they hadn't been Muslims for all that long, especially the uh, Quraysh in Mecca, who had only converted in 630. Uh, two years before his death. What really shows the power of the Islamic doctrine and of Muhammad's political genius is the fact that all of these people stuck with Islam. There was a war. So after Muhammad died, there was a succession dispute uh, between his two of his earliest followers. I mentioned them earlier, Abu Bakr and um, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ali was the son-in-law and the, the cousin of Muhammad. And Abu Bakr was one, I think he was his first adult male or second adult male convert. I think Ali was the first convert and Abu Bakr was the second adult male convert. Abu Bakr won the succession dispute and received Ali's blessing or his acceptance of his, his victory. And Abu Bakr became the Khalifat Rasulullah, Khalifatul Rasulullah, the successor to the messenger of God. So he wasn't claiming the title of messenger of God like Muhammad had, Muhammad Rasulullah, the apostle, the messenger. Abu Bakr was just the successor. In the two years that he had to live as the leader of the Islamic community, the Ummah, he had to suppress a bunch of Arabian tribes that apostatized. It was called the Ridha Wars. 
And he did fairly quickly, and he was able to maintain the support of the people in um, in Mecca and in the core supporters of Islam. After that, you have a period of 30 years. So from Muhammad's death, 632, up until the beginning of the Umayyad Caliphate in 661, this 30-year period is called the... the uh, caliphate of the rightly guided ones the rightly guided ones are the four prophets or not the prophets the four caliphs following muhammad so that's abu Bakr, and then uh umar bin al-khattab uthman bin affan and ali ibn abi talib under those those middle two omar and uthman the arabs went to war against byzantium and against persia for the first time, Islam, or the, the Arabs being united, now needed, in order to really stay united, it seemed advantageous to carry out raids and incursions into the rich territories of Syria and Mesopotamia and Egypt. So there were two big generals of the Arabs at this time, uh, both of whom had been leaders under the old Meccan aristocracy. One was uh, Khalid ibn al-Walid and the other was Omar ibn al-As. Both of these men were very famous in Arab history for leading their armies very swiftly. And this was the Arabs' great advantage in war against these settled and well-established armies, well-trained armies, very well-equipped armies of the Persians and the Byzantines. Because an Arab camel army of Khalid ibn al-Walid, of even a few hundred men, could attack out of the desert into Mesopotamia, and then it could disappear back into the desert, survive a journey of many days uh, using just water and dates, and then emerge out of the desert, perhaps on the other side of the Syrian desert and attack the Byzantines uh, a matter of days or a couple weeks later and never be seen. And both of these commanders use this to their great advantage. And very quickly under Omar and Uthman, the Muslims conquered Syria, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Iran, the Sassanid dynasty collapsed totally and was annihilated. The Byzantine Empire lost the Battle of Yarmouk. And I, I should add to this that the other advantage that the Muslims had in these wars, so I, I mentioned the swiftness of, and of their troops, their, their high mobility, their high standard of fanaticism due to Islam, their, their ideological unity. Also, the ideological disunity of the Christians or of the, the Rum, the Romans and the Persians. The final factor that I didn't mention before is the fact that Rome and Persia had been at war for 20 years prior to the uh, advances of the Muslims. And this war had dragged on. Uh, the Persians initially had the advantage. They conquered and broke away in the, uh, the early 600s, the provinces of Syria and Egypt and ruled them and then eventually were defeated in their turn by Heraclius, the emperor of Byzantium. But by the end of this war, you know, the, the borders were back to where they, need, where they had been at the beginning. And now Khalid ibn al-Walid and Omar ibn al-As appear out of the desert with warriors. And the Muslims defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Yarmouk. Uh, Heraclius' army was destroyed. The Byzantines were able to hold onto Alexandria a little bit by sea, for some more time, but eventually they lost that. And they were able to hold the line 
in Anatolia because of the uh, Anatolian plateau and, and their stronger support in Anatolia and to keep the Muslims uh, relegated to you know, northern Syria and Iraq. It took another 50 years or so. So Islam continued expanding even into the, the late 600s, early 700s. And it's often misunderstood or people don't realize how much time all this took. Like, yes, the initial advances out of Arabia and into Mesopotamia, Syria and Egypt were very quick. And those were very rich areas and they quickly succumbed to Muslim rule. The other advantage the Muslims had is their taxes were a lot lower, even for infidels than the Byzantine taxes had been. So it was pretty hard for the Byzantines to uh, get any loyalty from the Syrians or the Egyptians. But the other thing that isn't realized is that it did take the Arabs about 50 years to conquer North Africa and then invade Spain. And it did take them a similar amount of time in pushing east through Persia and to really meet the limit of their expansion in Central Asia. Looking toward the west, toward their advances across uh, the Maghreb into what's now Morocco and then up into Spain, they attacked across the Syrian desert. If you look at, not the Syrian, the Libyan desert, if you look at a map of North Africa, it's, it's deceptive because... There's two main settled areas in North Africa. One is the area from Tunisia to Morocco. And then there's the Syri the Libyan desert, which is and was back then rather uninhabited with the exception of a few settlements on the coast. And then you've got the Nile Valley on the eastern side of Africa that's very heavily populated. And it took the Arabs a lot of time to start raiding across that Libyan desert. And once they did, they met quite stiff resistance from the Berbers. That is that other race that I mentioned as being now considered part of the Arabic world and who have really only recently been Arabized and still to a large extent have not been Arabized. But the Berbers adopted Islam after only a couple generations of fighting against the Arabs. Now, the misconception is that Islamic militarism and, and fervor swept the Arabs from Arabia into Spain and southern France in one swing. Really what happened is that Islam united Arabia and the adjoining uh, areas of Mesopotamia, Syria, and Egypt, and then Islam sparked a sort of second national awakening among this people in the western part of, Af of North Africa, that is the Berbers, who then, while acknowledging nominal uh, control by the Arabs in Syria, were basically operating autonomously, invaded Spain, destroyed the Visigothic kingdom, and set up their own kingdom in Spain. So looking at that history, and that really is the core, or the, the really the most action-packed part of Islamic history is that first life of Muhammad, and then the conquests from Spain uh, all the way across the Middle East, all the way to Central Asia. I think that really shows the political effectiveness of what Muhammad did. He would not have been able to win that many adherents had his doctrine been confusing or um, had his doctrine been seen as outright immoral or ridiculous by the people over whom he ruled. Another thing to mention about the doctrine specifically that allowed for the political unification of the Arabs and all these other peoples is the five pillars of Islam. So I mentioned one already, that's al-Shahada, uh, the profession of faith, 
There's no God but God. Muhammad is his prophet. Very simple doctrine. Anybody can learn it. If you say it once while truly believing it, then you're a Muslim. The other four are uh, prayer. So Muslims are supposed to pray five times a day. Fasting, you're supposed to refrain from eating food or smoking cigarettes or screwing during daylight hours of the holy month of Ramadan, which is uh, 28 days. Uh, zakat, almsgiving. Uh, Muslims are supposed to give a quarter of a tenth of their money to the poor. And then the final one, and this is really the one that has the most political utility. I mean, you can see how prayer and fasting and charity all would build a community because you're doing these things all the time with the other people. You're going to the mosque together and praying or every you know, five times a day, the muzin calls out, Allah, but Allah. you're getting down and praying with everybody else. It's So it keeps everybody thinking about their purpose in life and their purpose in life is to prepare for the next life. Same thing with fasting. Fasting is just a little bit more extreme version of prayer. You're, you're putting yourself through intentional physical deprivation. But the most uh, useful, I think, pillar of Islam for political purposes and for keeping some unity within Islam is this idea of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. All Muslims are supposed to, if they can, if they have the means, at some point in their life, try to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. This means that every year at Mecca, in Hajj season, you've got people from all over the Muslim world all coming together and seeing all the other people who are part of the Islamic world coming together and talking with each other, seeing each other, and being impressed by the size of Islam, by the millions and millions of people. I mean, nowadays, it's, it's millions every year going on the Hajj. But in speaking of the political utility of Islam and the, uh, the spread of Islam uh, and the, the because of the political benefits that it provided to the people that came under its control, I think I ought to address the question of, did Islam spread by the sword? There are two contentions here. I think both of them are exaggerations. One is that Islam uh, is spread primarily or solely through violence and is a, a uh, doctrine of violence, or on the other hand, that Islam is a, a doctrine of, of peace. It's often conflating the roots involved islam remember how there are three words in an arabic or three letters in an arabic root so there is a, a superficial similarity uh between the word islam and salam salam meaning peace islam meaning submission uh yeah indeed it comes from the same root uh in the same way that uh peace in latin pax uh gives us the same root as pacification which can be a good or a, or a bad thing but i do think it is overplayed to say or an exaggeration to say that Islam is spread by the sword. Islam and Christianity, more or less, uh, if we look at the scope of both of their histories, are comparable in the amount of political coercion involved uh, for their spread. Now, that is a fact of merely historical interest. As far as a, a political question, I don't really care if Islam was spread by the sword or not. I... I don't need, I think there's this tendency, particularly, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think there's this tendency in dissident circles to attack Islam rhetorically because of its ideological positions. I think this is bizarre and weird because it is a very liberal way of thinking of things to say, 
I oppose this thing because of its ideological positions. I don't think we need that. Islam and the Islamic world are alien to us regardless of their ideological position. So I think in a way this is an academic question. But I will address the academic question anyway because it's fun. And if you look at the spread of Christianity in Europe, uh, the Saxon Wars, the, the Teutonic Knights come to mind as examples of rather uh, violently imposed uh, Christianity. And then if we look at Islam, yes, Islam spread with the spread of the Arabic Empire. But look at Egypt. In Egypt, uh, Egypt was Christian, uh, 90 or 100% Christian before the conquest by Omar ibn al-As. There are still about 10% of the Egyptian population that is Christian. After 1400 years of Islamic occupation, there is a 10% approximately uh, fraction of Egypt that has stuck with Coptic Christianity, despite being ruled over by Islamic regimes for the last 1400 years. The same is true of Syria, where there are in Iraq, where there are isolated Christian communities. In fact, in Syria and Iraq, the, the Jewish wars of the last 20 years have done more to destroy those communities than uh, or more quickly or accelerate the destruction of those communities than uh, a, a lot of the, the, the typical rate at which they've degraded over the last 1400 years. If we look at uh, North Africa, Christianity died out in North Africa only a few centuries ago. And if we look at, for instance, Iran, we see that Zoroastrianism did survive for a fairly long time in Iran, and the Zoroastrians left, uh, fled to India uh, a few, about a thousand years ago and formed a, a separate Parsi uh, community in India, and Zoroastrianism only died out within the last uh five, six, seven, eight centuries in Iran. So, and that's even more remarkable because Zoroastrianism is a far less, as I mentioned earlier with the Sassanids, is a far less uh, strong doctrine than Christianity. In referring to this matter about the spread of Islam and the, the connection of it with violence or conquest, I would refer you to this book by a certain T.W. Arnold, uh, Islamic scholar, or a scholar of Islam and Orientalist, called The Preaching of Islam, A History of the Propagation of the Muslim Faith. In it, he brings up this question of spread of Islam by the sword in the introduction. And he says that uh, it is not the cruelties of the persecutor or the fury of the fanatic that we should look for the evidences of the missionary spirit of Islam any more than the exploits of that myth mythical personage, the Muslim warrior with sword in one hand and Quran in the other. But in the quiet, unobtrusive labors of the preacher and the traitor who have carried their faith into every quarter of the globe. So yes, Islam has spread by two means. One is missionary uh, and missionary preacher and traitor, but it is also spread by the spread of the Islamic uh, political power. That being said, Arnold here brings up an important point. In the footnote, he says, regarding the idea of Islam being spread by the sword, this misinterpretation of the Muslim wars of conquest has arisen from the assumption 
that wars waged for the extension of Muslim domination over the lands of the unbelievers implied that the aim in view was their conversion. And then he quotes another scholar saying that, um, it's a German scholar, so he quotes it in German. He says, Es ist dabei den Kämpfern des Islam zunächst nicht so sehr um Bekehrung als um Unterwerfung der Ungläubigen zu tun. It is thereby for the fighters of Islam, first of all, not so much the conversion as the subjugation, or it doesn't have so much to do with the conversion as to do with the subjugation of the unbelievers. So Muslims conquer for the sake of bringing unbelievers into the political order of Islam, of, of Allah, but their conversion, and this is borne out by many historical examples, uh, or the, the, the consistent trend in Islamic history is that a new area is conquered, or uh, tellingly in Arabic it's called, they use the verb for to open to mean to conquer, so fataha, uh, conquered, it's opened. Uh, a new region, and then brought into Islam, and then a Islamic ruling class in the first days of Islam, of course, an Arabic-speaking Arab ruling class comes into power, and they would work with the existing Christians or Zoroastrians or whoever, and there were certain incentives to converting to Islam. For one thing, if you were a Dhimi, that is a a member of uh, a Christian or a Jew or a Zoroastrian, a, a monotheist who wasn't part of Islam, you still had to pay the poll tax, jizya, to the caliph. And so your taxes were a bit higher, nevertheless, still lower than they had been under Byzantium. And there was certain social barriers imposed on Dhimis. Now, throughout time, and depending on the regime, Dhimis had a better or worse status. For instance, under the um, Mamluk regime in Egypt from about 1200 to 1500, Egyptians and particularly Christians were relatively favored by the government because they were the sort of, they were better at writing and they were also more politically reliable. Uh, as is true of America under Jewish control today or many places, is the case that the a ruling regime, particularly a weak ruling regime, will prefer to rely on minority groups to maintain itself against a majority that might not necessarily like it. And that has been often the case in Islamic history as, as in histories of other countries as well. So none of that is to, to deny that conversions by the sort have happened. They certainly have. But I think it's unfair to characterize the general trend in Islam, the spread of Islam with uh, forcible conversion. Generally, it's been a Islamic state takes over, and then over time, often over many, many centuries, people prefer to convert to Islam. In the case of the Albanians, strangely, uh, the conversion to Islam after their conquest by the Turks happened very rapidly. This is probably, it was partly due to the... Mm, incompetence of the local Christian clergy, but between in the uh, but in about 30 years in the early 17th century, the Albanians went from being uh, about 10% Muslim to being uh, over 50% Muslim. And that's only after about 100 or 150 years of Muslim occupation. So it's varied very much depending on the region, depending on the time, depending on which, uh, you know, what government you're talking about, whether it be the Ottomans or the Abbasids or the Umayyads or uh, 
the Fatimids or whoever in whichever region. Something else to address. So as far as in befores, mm, actually, no, sorry, I, I'll, I'll skip, I'll, I'll save the other in before for later. I do want to talk a little bit about the the rest of the course of Islamic history. So I've, I've talked already about how uh, the life of Muhammad, and I've talked about the spread of Islam up to uh, the Umayyad Caliphate. The Umayyad Caliphate is a, in the beginning of the Umayyad Caliphate, which is about 660, 661 AD, this is after the first four rightly guided caliphs, the, uh, the Rashidun, the Rashidun, the last of whom was Ali ibn Abi Talib, the nephew and son-in-law of Muhammad. And he fought against Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, who was one of the the, uh, the top men within the old Meccan aristocracy. Muawiyah defeated Ali, and or not def- he didn't defeat him in a battle, but they had a battle uh, because Muawiyah was challenging Ali for the caliphate. The battle was stopped and both Ali and Muawiyah subjected themselves to mediation. And Muawiyah came off the better in the mediation and Ali lost a lot of his support. He was later treacherously murdered and then Muawiyah was able to establish a regime on the basis of uh, family succession. So no longer was the Muslim community electing a new leader from among the small core of the believers who had been around in the time of Muhammad. But now Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan passed on the caliphate to his son and then his son uh, to his son and so on for about 90 years. The This regime based itself at Damascus in Syria and was heavily made up of the old Meccan aristocracy, as you'd expect. This led to a, uh, 90 years later, this led to a sort of revolution from disaffected elements within the Islamic empire, particularly Persians and Shiites. Now, who are the Shiites? The Shiites are the people who had supported Ali during that civil war with Muawiyah. And originally, actually still today, there was no real doctrinal difference um, between Shiites and Sunnites. It's the same, it's very different from the problem that had occurred among the Christians in Byzantine Empire, where there were many, many doctrinal differences on, on minor points. Muhammad had in his reformation or in his his establishment of Islam kept the doctrine so simple that really the only way that you could have uh, factionalism was because of a political question like the succession to the leadership of the community, as happened between Muawiyah and Ali. And so these disaffected elements, uh, Shiites and Persians, uh, Persians being disaffected because they'd been conquered by the Arabs and many of them had converted to Islam, but they were not really allowed to advance within the Arabic or the Arabic speaking hierarchy, formed a giant conspiracy across the Islamic world to overthrow the Umayyad Caliphs. Uh, and they did so in 750. And the last uh, son of the Umayyad uh, dynasty fled to Spain and set up his own dynasty in Spain. 
But the rest of the Islamic world came under control of the new caliphate called the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, the Abbasid, despite its its support by Shiites, the Abbasid Caliphate was still a Sunni Islam uh, following caliphate, but it was more sympathetic to the Shiites and to the Persians than the Umayyads had been. And so as a mark of this, it moved the capital from Damascus to the right near the old Persian capital of Ctesiphon and built a new city called Baghdad, or was called at the time Medina to Salam, the city of peace. But the uh, it's the old Persian name for the, the settlement had been Baghdad, and that name is the name that stuck. The Abbasid Caliphate existed on paper from 750 AD until 1258 when the Mongols uh, sacked Baghdad and slaughtered everybody. But really only the first... 200 years or so of the Abbasid Caliphate are important politically because only in that period was the Caliph actually in charge. After um, after that period, for the last 300 or so years of Abbasid history, they were really just the Caliphs were the plaything of mercenary warlords from other parts of the Islamic world, and and they weren't really actually a thing anymore. They were sort of a comparable to the papacy in its uh, weaker times uh, throughout its history. They were just a, a religious figure and no longer the political leader of Islam. It is under the Abbasids that we have the uh, golden age of Islam. And I know that's much denigrated by certain, in certain uh, quarters, but there really was a flowering of culture in the Middle East in this period of... Uh, say about 750 to uh, 900, 950, when many works of ancient Greek literature were translated into Aramaic and then into Arabic. And then many works beyond that were written originals in Arabic uh, based on the ancient Greek literature, based on Aramaic originals and based on uh, the literature of Persia. Now, the one big conclusion to draw from this that won't be told to you by liberals, but will be admitted by good scholars of the Middle East, such as uh, Kenneth Starr or Christopher Beckwald, uh, sorry, Christopher Beckwith, is that the Islamic Golden Age, the writers who were prominent, the philosophers, literary figures, well, philosophers and, and scientists primarily were of Persian extraction, particularly uh, North East Persia, what's now uh, what we now call Central Asia, which then was still mostly Iranic and hadn't really been Turkified yet. Many of these great writers came from this area, although um, Arabic was their written language. So people like Al Farabi, um, Ibn Sina, who wrote in Spain but who was from Central Asia, and uh, uh, Al Bukhari, the guy that uh, gave us the main compilation of traditions about the life of the prophet Muhammad and uh, Al-Ghazali also from Central Asia. Al-Ghazali was the sort of last man of Islamic philosophy. He wrote the book, um, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, Tahasifat al-Falsafa, uh, wherein he lays out his doctrine that it is you know, faith alone and that reason has no purpose and he was refuted by that other scholar from Central Asia I just mentioned, Ibn Sina, but 
really al-Ghazali sort of was the end of uh, free thinking in the Islamic world, and that was about 1150. But in that period between uh, the beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate and, and the writings of al-Ghazali, there is a whole rich culture of philosophical works, uh, scientific works, works about uh, commentary on Greek philosophy, particularly on Aristotle, that, and uh, also of historians. Uh, I mentioned Al-Tabari, uh, this sort of the Pliny of the Arabs. There was also in later centuries uh, Ibn Khaldun, who wrote the Mukaddima, uh, a work of philosophical history, and then uh, another one of my favorites and one of the most useful for reading about the Crusades is uh, the 13-volume work of Ibn al-Kathir. Many others beside that who I'm not mentioning. All of this came to an end, like I said, with al-Ghazali, but the that was about 1150, and then you had another 100 years, but the real like definite end of it all was the Mongol sack of Baghdad in, in 1258. So other things that started to happen, and I'm glossing over centuries here just to give you a, a rough idea of these things, but other things that happened in the later centuries of Islam are familiar to us today. There was a notorious revolt of blacks in southern Iraq called the the Zenj. Uh, Zenj is the Arabic word for for Negroes. There was a a large population of blacks in southern Iraq, no longer there today because they were exterminated. But the it, Muslims had brought in slaves from all over the world. I mean, this is sort of a common thing that happens in advanced cosmopolitan societies is you bring in lots of migrants from other parts of the world, and then uh, you mistreat them, and then they get angry, and then they stage a big revolt against you. Uh, even if you don't mistreat them, they're going to revolt against you because they don't feel like they're a part of your thing. And this revolt lasted for 15 or 20 years, and there was like whole cities were destroyed and the Abbasid Caliphate had to send like military expeditions. They had to do like sort of a uh, patrol boat operations with archers sitting on boats, like swim, uh, paddling through the reeds of Iraq and getting ambushed by blacks shooting arrows at them. I mean, I'm, it would be a really cool movie if somebody ever decided to take it up as a subject, but th things like that started to happen later in the Abbasid Caliphate, 900s, 1000s. By the time the Crusaders arrived in 1100, well, uh, 1099, right, was the sack of Jerusalem, the Muslim world was so broken down and factionalized that they weren't able to put up a very good resistance. Another uh, thing that started to happen in the 9 and 1000s is that the Muslims started to hire soldiers, mercenaries from Central Asia, particularly Turks, to be the bodyguards of the caliphs. And these Turks started to become powerful and started to take over the government in kind of the same way that, say, uh, Charlemagne and his family uh, took power from uh, the Merovingians. And eventually these Turks started to set up their own regimes in, uh, you've probably heard of the Seljuk Turks. They came into Iran and then uh, pushed into Anatolia. They defeated the Byzantines at Battle of Manzikert in uh, 10... God, what was it? 10, 1071. Man, it's really, it's really fucking hot today. I feel like I'm in the Middle East. Uh, it's like so hot, it's hard to think. The 
Seljuk Turks and were, were another one of these Turkic groups. And eventually the Turks started to control the whole Middle East. Uh, a similar phenomenon was happening in Egypt. The Fatimid dynasty was originally a, a, um, a dynasty out in uh, the Maghreb, a Berber dynasty who came in and took over Egypt from, I think, the Abbasids controlled it before them. These vicissitudes of Islamic history, it's interesting to see the comparison because the the macro, the big trend, the macro trend is that you get more and more uh, breakdown of the unity of the of the uh, uh, of the political community, and you also get uh, the Arabs, the original uh, empire builders, start to get pushed out of positions of power. And so, even though Arabic culture and Islamic religion continue to be important, even past the destruction of the Abbasid Caliphate, even into the time of the uh, Ottoman Turkish regime or the Mamluks in Egypt, it is not. It is no longer Arabs who are controlling anything, and it is now Turks in what's now Turkey, and then the former Byzantine provinces and Egypt. It's Iranians in Iran, and it's uh, Berbers in North Africa. Now, there were uh, some other things. I mean, all this is happening around the year 1100, 1150. A lot of things happened in the 1100s that were just a, uh, a sea change in Middle Eastern politics. So one was the advent of the Turks and the Turks becoming uh, the dominant power within the Abbasid Caliphate and within, um, you know, on the borders of Byzantium and in Persia. The other thing was that looking out to the very west of the Islamic dominions in Spain and in North Africa, the Berbers were for the first time challenged by a large migration of Arabic speakers into their home territories. That is the Hillelin, the, the migration of the Beni Halal into Northwest Africa. And so we think of usually uh, Islam is having conquered. I mean, Islam did conquer North Africa in the uh, late six, early 700s, but it wasn't until the uh, migration of the Beni Halal from Yemen to Egypt and then out to Africa that, or out to uh, West Africa, that the Berbers were finally uh, not displaced totally, but finally challenged by a large migration of a big group of people and more and more people in that area, whether they, uh, whether Berbers or not, they started to become Arabized. They started to speak Arabic and think of themselves as Arabs. And that process is still going on or it hasn't, it's never really finished. And there are still Berber speakers out there, as I mentioned today. So, so much for this quick overview of Arab and Islamic history. I haven't really talked too much about the the Turks or the Persians. This is mainly a lecture on the Arabs, but we've mentioned the Turks and the Persians. But what I'm, I want to get to is the political implications of all this. What does the history of Islam mean for us, people who are political dissidents, uh, alt-right, uh, Nazis in uh, Western Europe today? First of all, as I I said at the beginning, I am interested, and I think the correct national socialist position is to be interested in approaching history from an objective point of view. I do not see Islam as an ideological threat to Western Europe. 
Islam can only be an ideological threat to our civilization if we are so weak that people start adopting Islam because there is no one else. There's no other option. I actually could see people in, in France starting to adopt Islam based on uh, how utterly pitiful the uh, regime there is and, and the opposition is to all of the uh, uh, crazy black and, and Arab riots going on in France. But in approaching the question of what does Islam mean, what do Muslims mean, how do we deal with these people, I think we have to be completely hard-headed and practical. It is wrong to simply denounce them and say, these people are evil and to to throw on them ridiculous accusations about uh, or even any accusations about the nature of their ideology. I do not care what their ideology is. I I care about what their ideology is insofar as I need to relate to them on a political level. And we whites in Western Europe need to deal with these people on a political level because they are in our countries against our will. Now, I agree with the position that I think the correct European American way to look at Muslims and the Islamic world in general is two things. In Europe, refugees not welcome. You have to go home. In the case of Israel, it does not follow that we uh, support Israel because they're killing brown people. Fuck that. No, death to Israel is the correct position. Our the the masters of the Western world are is the financial class, which is predominantly d Jewish. The one position that they do not like is the most practical, pragmatic position for white people and the most humane position, frankly, which is refugees not welcome. You have to go home. But also, no more wars for Israel, no more wars in the Middle East, and also, we support the Palestinians. Now, that's not to say that like, you should empty your bank account and give money to Palestinians. There's obviously more important things for us as white people in the West to care about. But I will be unreserved in my position that I support the Palestinians. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. Uh... For one thing, it's important to realize that the Arab world, that Muslims uh, in general, are not one block. There's several groups within them. And this is important because if you ever want to deal with these people, you're going to have to figure out which ones you can work with and which ones you can't. In, uh, I've mentioned so far like the uh, different linguistic groups, your Arabs, your Persians, your Turks, and then different racial groups within the Arab, the bigger Arab group. I think the biggest thing to recognize is the difference between uh, your smart, settled, bourgeois people and your um, lean and hungry, uh, rapey savages. You see, those are the two main types that I've seen in Europe. I mean, I haven't been to Europe since 2016, but in 2016, I did go to Lesbos for 10 days, and the distinction was very clear in the kinds of refugees that Europe was receiving, uh, quote-unquote refugees, right? You had one camp on Lesbos for Syrian and Iraqis who were mostly families. And they were clearly upper middle class. They had nicer phones than I can afford. They're all like fiddling around their iPhones half the time, wearing uh, Burberry brand hijabs. 
and uh, you know, going to the fancy shops uh, while walking around being very, very fat. On the other hand, you had these uh, these gaunt-eyed savages from Afghanistan and Pakistan who were isolated in their own camp uh, a little bit farther outside the city. So these are like the two main groups that are coming to Europe now. And you also have people from every random asshole from uh, from south of the Sahara and other parts of the world, too. But within the Islamic group, you've got these two main things. Upper middle class people coming as family groups and who really are there for material reasons. I mean, for upper middle class bourgeois material reasons. And then you have the, uh, how should I say, the rapey throngs of... of uh, other people. It's important to recognize the difference. I, I do think as far as the sort of more bourgeois um, migrants, whether they be through through Lesbos and through Greece and, and up into Europe, or just by you know normal way of coming into a country by airplane or, or whatever, there is a problem for Jews in power in the West right now. And that problem is that these high intelligence, high functioning minority groups like Syrians, Egyptians, Iraqis, or like Indians, or Chinese, or Koreans, or whatever, are a natural uh, competitor to the Jews. Now that these high functioning minority groups have largely pushed whites out of positions of authority, I mean, I guess it's still ongoing. There are still whites who are in positions of authority, but there are no whites who have institutional authority who you who wield it on behalf of whites. That's for uh, for damn sure. So these minority groups, high functioning, high IQ minority groups, are in a way a natural enemy of whites in America because they are um, they're actually in a way more dangerous than than uh, low IQ groups like blacks and Hispanics and and you know, your uh, rapey Pakistanis. They're more dangerous because they are able to steal, uh, by means legal or not, more wealth and are able to arrogate to themselves more positions of power. Now, that being said, as time goes on, there's fewer and fewer white people to displace. And if these high-functioning minority groups want to continue to advance in society and politics and in the economy... Well, naturally, that's going to bring them into conflict with Jews. And at that point, I am interested in these people's interests because there are possibilities for or the necessity of tactical alliances with them. Now, of course, before anybody spurgs out, obviously, if you're going to have a tactical alliance, you have to have your own group uh, sort of organized in a way that you actually have a little bit of power for yourselves before you can start talking about or seriously talking about working with other groups. But there is an opportunity there, uh, long term, assuming whites can get their shit together. Be because you should bear in mind that the Jew strategy always has been to play whites off against everyone else. So even if there is an interest, a mutual interest between racial thinking whites and another group in working together in a in a temporary and tactical alliance based on a clear understanding of mutual interests jews will always go after this because they see it as a deadly threat 
to their monopoly on using other groups against whites, their monopoly on uh, minority politics. Good example of this is, is GLR with the blacks. Uh, another good example is anybody talking about Muslims. Throughout the last several decades, there has been a, a, a fair amount of fear from the system, particularly from Jewish new interests, about the idea of whites and uh, Muslims recognizing common interests. Now, to give you uh, proof of this, I recommend the book The Enemy of My Enemy, The Alarming Convergence of Militant Islam and the Extreme Right by George Michael. This is a book that was written about 20 years ago, and it talks about uh, Arab nationalism and Isla uh, Islamism and connections between those things and uh, National Socialism and other uh, racialist white movements in the West. There have been a number of instances where this has sort of come up. Uh, David Duke, Dr. Duke, for instance, went to uh, Syria and Iran years ago and was, was well, well received there because of his position on Jewish issues. There's also uh, now, Adolf Hitler uh, himself, not a lot of people know this, but during the war, the German government was broadcasting 24-7 Arabic language propaganda from Berlin to the Arab world to encourage the Arabs uh, to resist British occupation and French occupation and making them aware of Jewish issues. All this is to say is that if there's anything that we can do to encourage outside groups to openly oppose Jewish power, and we can do so with very little expenditure of resources, I see no reason not to. There's been an interesting phenomenon since uh, fall of last year, since Yay came out against Jewish power openly. I've noticed, I mean, it's anecdotal, I can't prove this, but I've noticed that blacks are much more open to uh, discussing the Jewish issue and Jewish power because I think there has been a greater awareness among blacks, thanks to Kanye or Ye's uh, open denunciation of Jewish power, that blacks have started to see how uh, Western politics really works, that it's not the white man who runs things, it's the Jew pretending to be a white man that runs things and blaming whites for the bad things. Likewise, with the Arabic world, uh, a couple years ago, I did a video uh, in in my my best uh, classical Arabic, calling on the the uh, Arabs and Muslims to understand uh, that there, uh, despite what they might hear in the media, there are people in America who oppose Jewish power, and that the position that I personally take, and that I think many of us take, is that yeah, we don't want refugees, uh, Muslims in Europe. You have to go back. But that being said, we too oppose. Israel and Israeli uh, oppression of the Palestinians. And we also oppose the neocon use of our men, our money in wars against Iraq or Afghanistan or uh, our support for wars in the Yemen or Libya or wherever the fuck else. Uh, Zag is spending our money and wasting our blood uh, without any public discussion of these affairs. And I know that that video 
because it was in Arabic and directly addressed to Muslims, was a bit of a, a jab at Zog. And I, I know they took it as such because that video got know, a few thousand views. And also, I noticed that Memory, the Middle Eastern Media Research Institute, a uh, Jewish lobby group or whatever you want to call them in D.C., uh, that likes to track Middle Eastern media and publish uh, little translations of all the bad, scary things that the Hajis are saying. Well, I'm on Memory, so, you know, Allah Akbar. It's pretty cool, right? But that really just shows you that this is something the system fears. They do not want the different colors of Goyim to start realizing their mutual interests. Again, I feel like I have to say it again and again and again because people have trouble understanding this. None of this is to say that, well, therefore, we should have like a multicultural anti-Jewish movement. In order for whites to have any hope of resisting Jewish power, we obviously have to have our own base of power before we can work with other groups. But at the same time, there's no need to antagonize groups whose interests more or less align with ours. So then, what are we to make of Islam, Arabic history? What possible importance does this have for us? Throughout this lecture, I think I've indicated that the most important thing about Islam, from our point of view, from the Nazi point of view, is that there is a political genius within it uh, that from a academic and historic point of view ought to be studied. There is also for us on a practical political level a need for some men, not all men, but some men to have a deep understanding of these matters insofar as we will ever be able to uh, advocate for white people uh, and deal with outsiders like the Arabs uh, to work against international Jewish power. But there is a need also on the part of the broader public to understand this issue, at least in its broad forms, as I've tried to outline for you today, because you need, as a just a general member of the public, a generally educated and knowledgeable person to understand that the Arabs, the Muslims, as much strife as they cause us, they are not our real enemy. They have, over the last 1,400 years, on and off, been our enemies, sometimes our friends, sometimes our enemies, sometimes frenemies. But in the last 200 years, as much strife as we've had with them, it has all been caused by the fact that our civilization is not controlled by us, but is controlled by another Semitic group. I'll let you guess which one. And insofar as you hear people telling you that you ought to hate the Muslims and that we need to solve this Muslim question and deal with Muslims in our countries, well, yes, this is all true. We need, 
there are clear France just this week indicates that there is a huge problem here. I mean, hard to say. I can't say that I actually feel sympathy for the French police after what they did to the yellow vests. But nevertheless, I do feel sympathy, great sympathy for the French people, the real French people uh, for what they're going through. But all of this is secondary. The cause of all these things is Jewish international financial power. And I will point out as well that the uh, Jewish financial power, the main people who oppose Islam openly, um, and I don't mean in a sort of rational way like I'm doing now, but I mean in a, a, a vicious way, the sort of counter jihad movement, insofar as that's a thing, is led by Jews. Robert Spencer, one of the main people who attacks Islam and just says, ah, Islam is the problem, Islam is the problem. Well, you're fucking Jew. So, yes, it is misdirection. It is a sort of uh, moderately tolerated attitude to be a white person and to be very vehement in your opposition to Islam. But I'll tell you what is not a tolerated position because I've lived it and I know it, and that is to be pro-white and willing to be open to uh, working with the Muslims uh, on our own terms, on fair terms that are in the mutual benefit of both parties. And I would say that that applies not only to Muslims, I mean, that's been the subject of this lecture, but of course applies to all non-white peoples, all non-European peoples. We have to be willing to work with them out of pure political interest. And, and I don't mean to trick them or to, tr to trick ourselves into doing it either, of course. It has to be open. It has to be with the understanding for what our mutual interests are, and it has to be open and frank. That is the only way that you can work with other groups of people. Uh, there is no such thing as, as uh, sneaking in politics, unless you're Jewish. So to round off, If you are interested in learning more about this, I I can give you some some recommendations. I've said already, uh, John Bagot Glub, the Englishman who spent uh, 40 or 50 years among the Arabs. He uh, wrote a great biography of the prophet, uh, Life and Times of Muhammad by John Bagot Glub. He also wrote uh, six or seven further histories of the Arab world. Uh, a great place to start is his A Short History of the Arab Peoples. And there are some other books that are interesting as well. Um, another good one for the life of Muhammad, this is more specialized. It's taken directly from the original Arabic sources. It's much harder to read. I mean, you really, you want to get a, a basic grounding in the topic before you try to tackle this one. But uh, Martin Ling's Muhammad, his life based on the earliest sources. Ling's was a a sort of eccentric who converted to Islam, uh, you know, don't do that. But he uh, he does have a, a pretty good perspective on it. And then there's also uh, I mentioned at the beginning, History of the Arabs by Philip Hittai, the Lebanese man. This is uh, about 100 years old, but it's held up very well. And the man spent about 40 years talking to experts in Arab history in Europe and in the Arab world, and really honing uh, his conclusions into this very well constructed 700 page book. Uh, there's also, I mean, there's there's tons of books in the Arab world, but I would say, or uh, on Islam, but I would say, really, if you just look for books that are written before circa 1970, 
you're more likely to find things that are worth reading. And if you find books that are written by well-educated white men who are not Jewish, you're also uh, even better off. Uh, for instance, if you're looking at the Crusading period, you uh, there's a three-volume work by Stephen Runciman that's very good, very readable, entertaining, and uh, also informative. And uh, if you're interested in the literary history of the Arabs, their poetry and prose, uh, it's very hard to approach this unless you're a, a, a student of Arabic, but there is a good book on it called Literary History of the Arabs by R.A. Nicholson that can also be sort of read as a history of uh, early the uh, early Arabic Empire. For uh, Arabic Spain, I've mentioned this one before, but it's it's been, I don't know, out of it's been out of uh, out of popularity for 100 or 150 years. But uh, Reinhardt Dozy Islamic Spain or no, sorry, Spanish Islam is a fantastic work. And the first 100 pages of the work can be read as a sort of racial and political history of early Islam. And then, uh, you know, the rest of it is just uh, mainly focusing on the Emirates and uh, uh, of uh, Islamic Spain. There are a lot more that I can mention, but uh, I'll just leave you with those. And I hope you've enjoyed the lecture today. I also hope that, uh, you know, this, this helps clarify some things in your mind. You're dealing with, with Muslims. You're not dealing with just a generic brown person with a tendency to blowing up at spontaneous times. No, no, no. All jokes aside, this is a ancient culture and they have lots of differences among them and it is will be important for us uh, politically to understand these differences. So until next time, death to Israel, Allah Akbar, and Heil Hitler. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Here's the real song.